This episode is called The House of Black and White. <laughs> now there's this absolutely badass statue um, which welcomes you into Bravos called the Titan of Bravos. I love this because you could almost hear George Martin like reading about the Colossus of Rhodes and just going, <laughs> I can do better than that. Sam, um, Sam is leaving, presumably for old time. I think he's taking a bit of a detour along the way. You mean I want him to go somewhere, but he's actually going somewhere else to no discernible purpose at great length? You amaze me. Hello, and welcome to part two of Shark Liver Oil's read-through of George R. R. Martin's A Feast for Crows, the fourth book of his much-acclaimed A Song of Ice and Fire series. I'm Matt. I'm Dave, hello. And this this episode is called the house of black and white. Now all I can bom, hear bom, in my brain is far far Matt from bom bom bom. Just Michael Jackson, just just somewhere in a big echoey <laughs> cathedral giving it. <laughs> all I can hear. Yeah, yeah. It should be the house of black and white, and then that guitar bit. That's exactly what it needs to be. <laughs> Tell you what I think's missing from Westeros, Matt. Electric guitar. No shredding. Absolutely. No shredding goes Absolutely. on in Westeros. <laughs> so um, if you come into this, uh, this is the first time you listen to Shark Live Royal, this is a, a look at Game of Thrones, but it's look at the books rather than the series. So we do touch on the series and we run it sort of concurrently with what's going on in the TV series. But as we are increasingly finding, the books do tend to go their own way, especially in terms of pace of some plots. If you don't want to be spoiled for the series then you shouldn't really be listening to the books podcast if you don't want to be spoiled for the books you're probably best not best off not watching the series till you've read the books now because it's shooting ahead we're, we're the fun police of game of thrones if it, it's, <laughs> it's as if actually this whole situation with game of thrones is as if somebody sat down and went well we live in an age obviously where spoilers are a big deal and we must do our hardest to avoid spoilers but people have got too good at it we need to. We need. We need the master's degree course in avoiding spoilers. I tell you what, we'll do. We'll take the most popular fantasy book series of the past fifty years, and then turn it into a slightly different but equally popular TV series. Yeah. Shit 'em right up. <laughs> yeah. So if you, this is this is useful. This podcast for two things. If you're reading the books and you want sort of someone to read along with you and sort of help you through the mounds and mounds of character deaths uh, and experience the highs and the lows, then we do that. And also, if you're watching the series and you just sort of want to see what's going on with the book side, but you can't be bothered sitting down and reading it, then have a listen to us. <laughs> Basically. Um, right. Let's, uh, let's, so this, this week, uh, when we last left it, we'd got to a chapter about Sam, uh, where he was reading about the others. Uh, and this is the chapter we'll start with today. We're going as far as... Uh, a chapter about Jamie, which begins. Oh, is it? No, it's a chapter about Sansa, which begins once when she was just a little girl. Jeez, you shit me um, up there for a second. I was like, how many chapters <laughs> have I not read for this week? <laughs> yeah. No, we're reading as far as a chapter about Sansa, which begins when she was just a little girl, which sounds a bit like the start of a Radio 4 documentary or <laughs> drama. But no. I got 20 quid, says it's going to depart fairly quickly from the Radio 4 broadcast style guide. What do you reckon? <laughs> Yeah, I think you'd be right with that. Uh, okay, let's uh, let's get into it then. So the first chapter we've got for today, Sam is uh, is reading up on the others um, when he sees his mouse. To be honest, there's not really much else to say about the mouse. It disappears pretty quickly. The, <laughs> the interesting thing here, uh, and it was just a, a, a first comparison with the series. Um, it's a, it, the the books and the series, sort of the the wall at the moment, are pretty much in line with each other, but. Mm. Um, in the series, Pip and Gren have both died. They died in that massive battle at the wall. Yeah. And in the book, they're still very much alive, <laughs> which is really <laughs> odd because it's almost like the ghosts if you're trying to sort of, a, yeah. if, if you're struggling to get them both sort of realities together. But they're very much alive and kicking in the book. I like the one where Pip and Gren are still alive to me. Yeah. Well, lucky for you, this is the reality we are existing in now with the yes! book. Yes. Um, there's, there's a little uh, sort of ode to, to novels and to books here as well, which um, sort of George R. Martin uh, says through Sam. He um, says that Sam understood the way he could sometimes fall right into books as if each page was a hole into another world. Yeah. Which is a little... Yeah. That's this a, is why yeah. we love the book. Absolutely. <laughs> it is It is a hole into another world. Like, it's... I feel like the TV series does pretty well at making you fall into but you sort of hit the bottom a lot sooner with the TV series because they've only got an hour to play with, whereas I'm spending at least 
what an hour an hour and a half reading each little chunk of this and there's depth mm. and description and all that and as as the as the wise man said matt hollywood cannot live up to the power of your imagination <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and wise words have never been roared in a song quite as uh, quite as intently as that have we tweeted um, that yet by the way i don't think so yeah there's a really oh. good um i read the books uh, i'll actually expletives. you know what if i can do that i'm going to do that now i tweet it now Cool, okay. There's basically cool. a, a, a music video uh, about Game of Thrones, which is well worth a, a watch, but we'll stick it on the Twitter account. Um, so, at Shartlive Royal, if you're wondering where, where it is. Um, so, so Sam's sitting there, uh, having a look through. He's, he's reading up on the others, uh, and then he has to go to see John, who's now he's the boss, isn't he, John? Now? He's paid the cost to be the yeah. boss. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> and as... as Sam arrives, Gilly, who's the uh, wildling uh, girl who's got a child, is leaving looking really upset. Uh, that might become uh, important Ooh. later. Um, and John and Sam discuss politics about how John's in a real bind at the moment because they're trying to please two kings. You've got Tywin in the south that they need to keep on side, but he's not helping them directly. And you've got Stannis in the north who is helping them at the moment and making all these demands. And they have. John's very worried about backing the wrong course here because if you happen to back the king, that I mean, you try to take no part at all, but you have to help someone at some point. And if you give too much help to the king, who sort of the wrong horse, that yeah. could be the end of the watch. Yeah, and that's no small thing, right? I mean, they're talking about John being like the nine hundred and ninety-eighth Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, hmm. and you know, it's a, it's it's in a way this amazing inheritance of kind of being like the chief badass of all badasses, like people who are so badass that even politics are beneath them, sort of thing. Is the idea hmm. of the Night Night's Watch, and now he's in this place where he's—I mean, he's still was he eighteen? You know, in the hmm. book, less than, and he's supposed to be like, yes, no problem, got it sorted, gonna do this, gonna do this, gonna do this. <laughs> Politics, piece of piss. Like, yeah. I don't know about you, when I was 17, I would have just been like, oh, I don't know, really, I'm, I'm here to make the tea, to be honest, that's, uh, <laughs> that's all I'm here for. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like things are going badly for Stannis as well at the moment, because he's trying to get the Northern Lords on side, and he's not having much luck. The only, only one of the, the sort of houses in the North have actually... Uh, replied and said, "We're going to join up with you," and that's the Carstarks. No surprise, seeing as no one yeah. really likes them anymore. <laughs> I was going to say that. I really enjoyed that little callback to what three books ago, where they made it clear yeah. the Carstarks really were like the wankerish wankers of the. Yeah, yeah, Stannis, my sort of bloke. Yeah, well, I think the Carstarks are in a difficult position because obviously they, um, the their their head of house was killed by Rob Stark because he was acting up so much. But also, they were never really on side with the Boltons. They weren't sort of part of that rebellion. Mm-hmm. So they kind of fall in between two stools. They, they sort of they were already outcast before the Bolton rebellion, and that hasn't really helped them very much since. So they're looking for anybody to help them out. The rest of the North seems a lot more standoffish. Yeah, um, definitely. The yeah. Uh, there's a plan to burn Mance Raider because he's got King's blood, and uh, it's sort of it looks like Melisandre thinks that could be some kind of useful. Uh, spell for her so there's another plan there do you know what uh, you know, i'm kind of waiting for it to be well, we've seen evidence obviously that the red god is one of these like real gods in this continuum these kind of supernatural powers that have genuine mm. influence and ability but at the same time if this wasn't a fantasy universe and you saw somebody acting as single-mindedly fucking mental as melisandre does you'd be like it's it's a it's a it's a, a cable TV true crime show waiting to happen. Melisandre used her breasts to put all the men in her power and make them burn people because she believed they had <laughs> royal blood. Coming after the break, why the funeral yeah. pyre didn't work. You know, like, it's it, this is... I, I suppose I'm just reconnecting with just how crazy Melisandre is after spending some time away from the books. And she, t- yeah. as a spectacle of mental, she does not disappoint. Yeah, and it's funny because Stannis always comes across as being quite pragmatic with this faith. He's not. He isn't particularly. Uh, you know, he's not much of a fanatic to be honest. But he is kind of like a. Yeah, it seems crazy, but it also seems to be getting results. Like, you know, all these are the pretenders to the throne have died after burning a few leeches and um, various other things and, and if you remember the one time he um, decided to put her, her to one side was Blackwater and we all know how that turned out <laughs> so he's thinking you know what I may, as well keep, I may as well keep down this path that seems to be working as crazy as it seems he's very utilitarian religious maniac Stannis isn't yeah. he really <laughs> yeah yeah um, John is it turns out the, the reason Sam's 
pouring through these books about the others is on John's orders because John wants to know as much about them as possible so they can be in some ways prepared for the um for the fight there's already this belief isn't there about uh, dragon glass which stannis is already mining over at dragonstone yeah um, and there's also that there's also these bits and pieces that sam has found out about um valyrian steel being useful but there isn't very much of that around and um and fire as well as they've seen already that can help drive off the uh, drive off the others mm. all of this stuff there's a bit of me there's a lot of me which really wants to which is really like yeah cool let's hear more about that Unfortunately, I've been reading this series for too long, and I have no faith whatsoever that George is going to give me the slightest crumbs of plot in this direction that I actually care about for the rest of this book. I just, I, I honestly do expect this to be the only time that either Obsidian, like Dragonglass, or Valyrian Steel, or indeed the others, are mentioned in a kind of "I wonder what's going to happen with them" sort of a way, and it's going to be—it's <laughs> going to be a long, long walk through the rest of Essos now for Arya. That's my prediction for the rest of the book. That's, that's what I expect. Because if you, you, because Matt, if you set your expectations low, you cannot be disappointed. I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, the uh, in terms of disappointment, Sam is disappointed because uh, he finds out that uh, John has got a plan, uh, which is to send Sam to Old Town to become a Maester. Because because uh, Maester, uh, the, the current one, what's he called? Uh, what's the old chap called up at the wall? Oh, um, Aaron. Yeah, yeah, that guy. He he's um he's he's obviously knocking on a bit and he, he, they need more maesters so he thinks Sam's a perfect contender and John was expecting Sam to be well up for this because A, it's south and somewhere warm and safe B, surrounding yourself with loads of books and learning so you'd think it'd be a great opportunity but Sam actually wants to stay at the wall Yeah. Um, and it's interesting here that eventually when it comes down to it John sort of gets the commander clothes on and basically says, look, you're going. That's yeah. like the boss. And, yeah, and it's sort of it out. this friendship almost is put on hold, isn't it, for, yeah. for, for that there. Yeah. And yeah, it's an interesting thing, really. I mean, did, did John come off to you as being really cold here? Or was this kind of like, oh, he used to be my mate, but now he's the boss sort of thing? Or or do you mm. think this is, there's ultimately a certain amount of human warmth that he's practicing here, you know, like get the fuck away from the wall, there's going to be a war here sort of thing? Like, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's probably both. I think it is, he's very aware, John, that he needs to be acting, you know, he's very aware of the position he's got now. Yeah. And that that means he can't be um, as he was before. You know, that there are certain responsibilities he's got to take on. Very mature for uh, for his age, as you've already said. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, and then, so, so the chapter ends with Sam, um, Sam is leaving, uh, presumably for old time. I think he's taken a bit of a detour along the way um, mm. as, as, as a useful sort of, uh, character incarnation of the way the plot's going at the moment. Um, <laughs> you you so, mean I want him to go somewhere, but he's actually going somewhere else to no discernible purpose at great length? You amaze me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So uh, next up, we, we go to Aya. When we last saw Aya, she was hopping on a boat, getting. She was, she was, peace out, I'm out of here. I'm getting <laughs> a boat. I'm off somewhere random. Um, and she is, uh, it turns out she's going to Bravos. Oh, we, we kind of knew she was going there, but she's arriving now in Bravos. Mm. Um, and it's kind of, I mean, it's, I felt a little bit of apprehension for her here just because she's still just this little girl. Mm. And she's on this boat, which, you know, there's this captain who's just doing her a favor because he's kind of afraid of her because she's got this coin. Yeah. But there's no one look, actually looking after her. Yeah. And she's just about to arrive in this weird foreign town, foreign yeah. city. But but it's all right, Matt, because we've seen in the past, whenever you feel that sense of foreboding in your gut about the well-being of a character, it's always all right <laughs> in A Song of Ice. It's always fine. Yeah. And there's this absolutely badass statue um, which welcomes you into Bravos called the Titan of Bravos. It's this enormous, um, you know, it's almost like a, like a, like the old sort of uh, mythical colossus. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was actually, I mean, the colossus was a real thing, but it, I don't think it was quite the same as it's, you know, the story that's grown up around it. Yeah. It's basically this massive statue straddling a, like the, the, in, uh, the, the way into a, into a bay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's also, it, it, it's, it's there as a, an impressive structure to sort of show the power and wealth of this city, but it's also a useful, practical, defensive structure. Oh, you see as she goes in, there are sort of loads of little slits where there are um, arches yeah. and there's some murder holes beneath where they sort of pour boiling oil out if, uh, if people they don't like are arriving. I love this. I really did. Because you could almost hear George Martin like reading about the Colossus of Rhodes and putting down the encyclopedia or the history book and just going, <laughs> I can do better than that. 
<laughs> they missed a trick with that. And like, you know what he needs? Yeah. He needs a murder hole on the cock. That's what he needs. <laughs> and that's what they got. It's the only place you could reasonably put somewhere you're going to pour boiling oil out of. So leading to the, the, the entertaining possibility that this particular <laughs> Titan, right, when when they're really, really, really winning, when they're like like their ultimate... We, you know, go big or go home play when they're being attacked in the harbour. <laughs> it, it must look like the Titan's shitting himself when they do it, mustn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. It is a weird image, isn't uh-huh. it? If you, if you actually think about it, actually happening. Um, <laughs> when the t- and you, like this, I can't believe he missed a trick, George. You can do one better than Colossus of Rhodes. I can do one better than you. You should have done a song, a minstrel singing about you know when the Titan shits himself, it's time to run away or. Something. <laughs> that famous that famous song. That famous song, <laughs> When the Titan Shits Himself, It's Time to Run Away. Yes, I think that would sell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because Aya remembers all these stories that she hold, heard from old Nan, who was the, uh, the the woman who used to sort of look after them in Winterfell, mm. about how the, there are all these tales of the Titan coming to life uh, when, when Bravos is in danger and sort of uh, obviously saving the city and then seems feasting on highborn girls as a reward um, so. yeah. yeah another cheery story for it's amazing how how many how many things did old nan actually appear in 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 like the first book way back it's just like half of the first book she was like a bit character but the number yeah. of characters who still go oh old nan told me and i wonder if she meant to irrevocably fuck up some of the leading elite of her country <laughs> Or if that was yeah. just a pleasant side effect of being who she was, I don't know. Yeah, do you remember Septa Madane? She doesn't. She never gets a mention anymore. Yeah, she? she was a <laughs> practical one. We were supposed to be teaching them. Yeah. They all, all they remember is old Nan's story. That's amazing. <laughs> well, it's because Septa Madane spent her entire time telling Ira off for being insufficiently girlish, right? Yeah, like she was. She was like, "You're not wearing the right stuff." No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. So, what do you make of Brav? So, Bravos is as a city. It's very much like a. It's like Venice, isn't it? It's a bustling um, merchant city with loads of canals and uh, and things like that. Yeah, I really liked it. Again, this is it's a really lovely little riff on Venice, isn't it? Um, mm. And I've never been to Venice, but again, it's, it's sort of it felt like Venice, kind of but bigger. Or Venice, but full of competing religions, which I thought was really interesting. You know, know, Venice is, like, as an Italian city, obviously, uh, like, most of the churches you encounter there are going to be Christian, they're going to be Catholic. But... I love the idea of a city growing up with the same kind of vibrancy and all the rest of it as Venice has, but with like mosques and temples and gurdwaras and 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 churches and everything. Mm, yeah, they're very much in sort of equal opportunity religion worshippers, aren't, aren't they? they? Yeah, Every, yeah. Everybody, everybody has a go, um, including the, the House of Black and White, which seems to be this kind of semi-religious place, uh, which. Arya is dropped off at because that's where a sort of coin gets her to and she she enters this door it's like a black and white door and goes into this sort of uh, murky quiet uh, somber temple like place which has got loads of statues and we find out later that all these statues are, are the various religions versions of death so you've got the sort of this guy in a hooded cloak's one of the statues which is the stranger which is the sort of one of the seven which is which is representing death and the various other ones knocking around um and there are, there's this sort of pool in the middle of water or some kind it's not water it's some kind of liquid which people are drinking to die people people basically come to this house to die to poison and, um, themselves as well, not just not just yeah. they are dying, so they come here for somewhere peaceful. They turn up and they're like, "It's a nice vibe in here, isn't it?" Might, might top <laughs> myself. Might, yeah, that's the thing to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's so that this place it's all about death. This place, isn't it? And um, this priest comes up to uh, Aya, and after this conversation with her about what she wants to do and how she wants to be a part of this, because she, she looks away and thinks, "Yeah, I'll, I'll be a part of this." And um, and he's like, "Do you fear death?" And she's like, "No." And he reveals his face, and at first it, it looks like he's just got a skull. It's just like a, he's just a skeleton. And Aya isn't the least bit perturbed by this, and that seems to be in some way passing the test. And then he turns into a kindly old man and says, "Right, you're a, you sort of you're in if you." Yeah, 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 yeah. She actually eats the worm that's coming out of his eye eye socket. So this she tries was to. this was a really weird. Which, by the way, they didn't do in the TV series. In the TV series, there was just. Well, there was another thing that happened, which is presumably going to happen next week in the book, so I'm not going to go there. Um, <laughs> a sentence which I expect to utter quite a lot during this series. But um, 
But this was another example of this this sort of weird sort of Houses of the Undying kind of halfway between a supernatural experience and a bad acid trip type thing. Mm. Like in the in the first of the three prologues last week, where um, where your man what was his name Pate. Uh, in uh, mm. in Old Town, where he kind of the end of his thing was this sort of nebulously described: is it really real, or is it just figurative, or is he, you know, is it magic? Thing about like the ground turning to water beneath his feet, and then there's mm. this where where this what is she nine? And her mm. and her her response to somebody turning out to be a skull with a worm crawling out of its eye socket is to try and eat the worm, and yeah. and that was the right thing to do somehow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really, really weird sort of, you know. It's like he's kind of finally come around to the fact that he just wanted to write a sort of, sort of fear and loathing in Westeros book, full of <laughs> really weird hallucinations the whole time. What did you make of it? Like, are you interested in it going in this direction? Does that sound good to you? Yeah, I think um, it shows that she, because she's, because she's seen so, so much horror over the last sort of uh, however long she's been on the run. Um, she's. It's funny because you. As you're reading through all that, you're thinking that she's being sort of her character's really being chipped away at and destroyed, and that it's sort of it's making her into a weaker person, sort of morally in terms of the in terms of having humanity. But it, the the reverse of that is that it seems to be a part of this order, whatever it is. Um, you need to strip that kind of stuff away. So it actually is actually a benefit losing that level of humanity and that connection with the world mm. is actually something that you know the the people who are closely involved with whatever this whatever this sect or whatever it is um, need to be like that. So it's actually almost like that year or so of hell on the road is actually been her in training for whatever purpose she's going to fulfil in the rest of the book. Yeah, and that's an interesting direction to take it. But again, sort of like the um uh like the fact that the last time we saw Tyrion he shot his father in the crotch and strangled this woman that he'd been in love with for three novels I'm a bit mm. nervous about that because there are a lot of unsympathetic characters series and very few sympathetic ones and yeah, yeah. I is one of the sympathetic ones and mm. uh, certainly by contrast with Sansa I think um by contrast with almost anybody really so I'm like oh good she's gonna go to this dark place well you know we needed a bit more of that Hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm a bit, I'm nervous about it, but again, it's his story to tell, right? So I, I'm going to trust him that it's going to come out all right. But right now, I'm like, yeah. oh, okay, good. M- more stuff I'm not really going to enjoy while it's happening. Yeah, this is this is part of the and a part of the difficulty I think with Feast for Crows is that in the Storm of Swords and the books before the first three books, really, he does kill off a lot of a lot of the characters who are sort of the good guys, if you like, mm. get killed, die, don't they? And it's almost the first three books is almost like a story about how the good guys always die. Yeah. And the problem is that often means you're left with either building up new characters from a standing start mm. to find yourself some good guys again, yeah, or or sort of redeeming other characters. Um, or you just stuck with a really dark book, and it's what it's how he sort of. I think a lot of Feast for Crows is him trying to hack his way out of that corner. Yeah, um, yeah, I definitely, I, de- I definitely have a sense of there's some there's a certain amount of hacking on here. Um, hmm. I'm, I'm with him for yeah. it because you know I reckon he knows how to get back to the right path, which most authors don't. So. So you know, cool. Like I'm in, uh, but I uh, yeah, I'm a bit like if you're gonna make it as bleak as it's been so far, George. You know, risky, <laughs> risky. Yeah, it's also I, I suppose it is interesting also to see grey characters though sometimes, and there are even characters like as we're going to come on to uh, Cersei, who you sort of spend the first few books hating. She's never a sympathetic character, but I I, I sometimes find there are elements where you can see you know, that's gonna that must be pretty hellish for her. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and given what's happened to her, you know, this is realistic. I'm not saying it's a departure from a character. I'm just saying I still mm. don't see why. You know, my my kind of patient's been running thin with it for quite a while. And mm. if he's if he's gone through two books of her being dicked around in every every conceivable alehouse in Westeros, simply in order for her to turn into a horrible character, I'm a bit like, well, they're a quick of doing that, aren't they, George? Mm. Um, but at the same, but again, like you got it, like you say, you got to have the rise and you got to have the fall. And one of the things George is really good at is introducing complexity to characters. So you just straightforwardly evil. Mm. Well, speaking of just straightforwardly evil, the next chapter is Cersei. And, uh, <laughs> There's a segue, Matt. You see, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so um, this is Tywin Lannister's funeral, and 
it's funny they're getting ready to go to the sept um to sort of pay their respects cersei and tommen the the young king and there's this little things like as they're as they're on the way over there cersei says you know sit up straight and draw the curtains of the of the sort of wagon that they're in or whatever and other litter and um and he's really obedient and meek and yeah. worries Cersei that he's so well behaved because kings are supposed to be a bit more willful and what that means for his ability to govern these unruly lords when he come, when he sort of comes of age. It's almost as if he's had some horrifyingly overbearing, self-important, willful <laughs> and pointlessly domineering presence in his life since the first moment he drew breath. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but having said that, um, she's the same mother who was the mother of Joffrey. And yeah, but he was so, the absolute opposite. Yeah, but so what she's I mean, saying here, yeah, well. exactly, is like <laughs> the only good way for one of my children to turn out is so mental that his extremely <laughs> vulnerable uncle, who clearly has the longest fuse in the world, poisons him and then flees the country at his own risk. <laughs> Like that's that that for her is a win as a parent, and I have to I have to question the reasoning behind that. <laughs> she has got a point though, hasn't she? That you can't be nice and meek yeah. and trying to please everybody if you want to be a good ruler. No, absolutely. And Tommen, yeah. for, as 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 lovely as Tommen is, he's just not leadership material at the moment, is he? No, I agree. He's also what is he nine? So you know, yeah. um, so I'm not certain there are many nine year olds in the world who are leadership material. <laughs> Certainly, Joffrey yeah. wasn't one of them but um but i mean yeah you you are right i'm just like well she kind of says that as an external observer as if Mm. this most fanatically committed of mothers you know she's turned the maternal instinct into an insanity uh which is Mm. quite a trick um but it's as if she doesn't really believe that she's had any effect whatsoever on the on the character of her children which is just crazy yeah yeah well i suppose as we as we keep seeing um sort of cold light of day introspection about her own feelings <laughs> isn't something that Cersei does very often. I'm still waiting for it, Matt. You know what? I still believe. I'm waiting for the day when she yeah. when she thinks, I, I might have done that badly. You never know. You never know. Um, so they go to see Tywin's uh, body and because he's starting to rot already, he's... Uh, his sort of lips are starting to turn up at the sides. It looks like he's half smiling, which uh, Cersei see, feels is sort of detracting a bit from his sort of overbearing, domineering presence. Um, <laughs> she, she, also blames pa- yeah, she also blames Pycelle for that. And uh, she's a great line here. She, she just thinks that uh, Grandmaster Pycelle is uh, is as useful is as useful as nipples on a breastplate. Which is great. <laughs> <laughs> We've all seen them, though, haven't we? For some reason, they always get beaten out. But anyway, <laughs> you could also say nipples on a man. I don't really see what the point of them are, other than it would look weird if you didn't have them. Well, I mean, but that's true of everything, isn't it? You know, what's the point what of, the, of little little? Te- well, we would look weird of everything. Like, if, you know, <laughs> what's normal is what's normal. That's like, there's no reason at all. To, yeah, we better put some nipples on there, otherwise it'll look weird. Why? You know, <laughs> yeah, be a bit weird. Nothing to, to that though. Everything else, so you've got fingers, so you can pick things up. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but why not for? four, three fingers instead of four fingers? Or why? Why have we got <laughs> eyebrows? Or you know, <laughs> well, eyebrows actually isn't that to stop sweat running into your eyes? Uh, I've never been in that position, Matt. Myself, I wouldn't know. I don't, so. <laughs> you never sweated. <laughs> no, I don't. Uh, well, you know, working out, working out, it's for other people, isn't it? Um, <laughs> uh, we, 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 we're going down a blind alley here, aren't we? Let's get, let's get back to <laughs> yeah, the I was, I was wondering why you'd taken us down a particular little discursus <laughs> on the existence of male nipples and their use. Yeah, it was just a little bugbear I've had. It's for a while. Why are they there? First question you if ask, anyone... Matt, isn't it, when you appear before the creator? Honestly, nips, why? Why? On a man? Well, in, yeah. <laughs> In the absence of a direct dialogue with the creator right now, um, <laughs> if anyone on if anyone out there knows what the hell nipples are for in a man, can you uh, email sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com and just put my mind to rest, please? <laughs> I can't that's been... believe we're using the social media feed for that. Brilliant. So, you know. Okay. So, um, where were we? Oh, yeah. Tywin Lannister, dead. Still dead. And um, <laughs> the... <laughs> Which is not a given in this series, is it, though? No. <laughs> People yeah. staying dead, you know, it is actually worth reiterating it. Yeah. Throughout this chapter, Tywin, um, I mean, we said earlier on that his reputation took a bit of a wobble with the, with the manner that he died. Also, his funeral, um, he, the body's starting to smell 
So you have these like mourners coming in and sort of covering the noses and stuff. And it, again, it's just a bit of a, it's, it's another, uh, I don't know, chip away at his memory really, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and I think this whole little strand is played really well because it's Tywin Lannister who's been like the ultimate badass in this universe mm. like the one thing that's been completely unquestionable is his personal power and it turns out he can die whilst having a ship killed by somebody like one-sixth his size who he's always hated and never trusted and you know and de- decomposes like everybody else like mm. yeah fairly yeah, guess, sobering you know yeah it's like I said in the last books the death comes to us all yeah kind of, uh, exactly line, isn't it? yeah 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 so there are a few um, interesting things that happen at the sort of wake here. One is that Lancel turns up, and uh, Jemba, he's the uh, nephew or niece, uh, uh, yeah, uh, nephew of Cersei's, who she was also sleeping with during this sort of book two. And um, he looks like he's sort of becoming this sort of, he's got a newfound piety. Um, he's got really into the sort of religion side of things. And she's worried about two things here. One is that he might, start getting mouthy in his confessions about a them both of them sleeping together but she said she thinks she can sort of she can probably get away with that anyway by just laughing it off as typical boasting um <laughs> while you're both what's, about sleeping with your aunt what, yeah sure. exactly exactly could not have said it better myself <laughs> something wrong in this girl's yeah. head i'm telling you he, he's pretty everybody will think he's boasting everybody would be proud to have slept with me my brother certainly is oh yeah She's also worried, though, about the fact that she put him up to giving King Robert so much wine that he got yeah. ridiculously drunk and killed by a boar. Yeah. And this, I think this is the first time she kind of... I mean, it's always been something we've suspected, but she's actually outright admitting it to herself here. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and, and to Lancel as well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Mace Tyrell, uh, Tyrell, the uh, the guy, sort of the the Lord of Highgarden, who... It's funny, actually, uh, this is one of the characters that I get a very different impression of in the book as opposed to the series. In the series, he's almost a comedy character, sort of bumbling around. Yeah, just, he's um, totally laughable. Just, yeah, um, it's, it's just in this incredibly powerful and wealthy position, but he sort of just does what his mum tells him and <laughs> is gen- generally useless. In the, um, in, in the book, I see him as more a... Uh, a bit, he's, he's, he's sort of very pompous and loud and full of self-aggrandizement. But he, he's, he also strike, struck me as possibly quite dangerous and quite strong as well. So yeah. he needed to be handled. Yeah. Um, you never get any sense of that menace in the in the series. It's something I was trying to remember when I'm reading it in the book. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And he's he has a sense of pomposity in both. But in the TV series, it's played for laughs, and I don't blame them because the laughs are fairly light on the ground <laughs> yeah um yeah but he's right like his political position here is is i like the books a bit more for kind of making it making it stick a bit more it's a bit more frightening you know yeah and he barrels into this wake basically and goes straight up to cersei and says oh yeah so my you know one of my uh guys is on the way over to become master of coin um and and Cersei's like, whoa, 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 hold up. <laughs> Sees this as a as a threat. It's funny because he says it's an agreement that they, that he'd already made with Tywin. Yeah. And we'll never know if that's actually true. I think. Yes. Um. And it could be one of two things here. It's either it's another Cersei just fucking things up yeah. when it's a useful appointment, or it is actually Cersei's paranoia is working for her here because it is Mace trying to pull a fast one a bit and yeah. just getting someone else on the council you can Im- before You can imagine him settled. doing that, can't you? Just sort of like, what? Yeah. No, it's agreement. Yeah, we had it. Yeah, talked. To- well, I mean, I'll tell you, I tell you, tell you when it happened is we talked and he got it from the table and said, my word, I've got a dump on deck that could choke a donkey. I'm just going to the toilet. And then I heard a thump and, and, and that was it. So um, basically his dying wish, really, Cersei. <laughs> It's like that uh, episode of Alan Partridge where the guy dies before he signs a contract. Oh, Chris, let me just help you sign that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So so Cersei uh, decides, no, he's not going to be Master of Coin. She's going to appoint this guy called Lord Rosby, who... um, He's the very picture of a very sick man. He's got this cough, which turns out um, at one point she sees that he's coughing up blood and he's just trying to hide it. So he's not. Gonna, it doesn't look like he's going to be around for long. Yeah, um, definitely somebody you want in it, the in the decision making body for a, a kingdom in flux. Yeah, it's interesting that immediately he always he he already starts talking about removing some of the people sort of serving in the treasury at the moment and replacing them with his own guys. Yeah, and it's all these people that Littlefinger's brought him, and yeah. you just think. If the treasury's been run in such a... It's been run in a 
very ropey way to bring in money that doesn't really exist and keep the finances going. Removing a couple of cogs from that could be a very costly move if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, yeah, King's Landing, too big to fail, eh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So we also, after the the wake, uh, Cersei meets with Kyburn, who's this this maester who was kicked out of... um, I don't know the guild of maesters or whatever because he was because of his experiments that he was doing he actually elaborates a bit in this chapter and says that um when he was at old town learning to be a maester like i was doing his sort of doctor's part of it if you like yeah. um he everybody experiments on dead bodies um to work out how best to heal people and he started doing that on living bodies and that was where they drew the line and said uh yeah maybe, <laughs> maybe this this line of work isn't for you which i think I, that sort of surprises me a little bit because it's not like westeros is full of like it's not as if they had ethical concerns is it can you imagine hmm. you know in this world where nobody matters and life is cheap for them to be like, mm. actually, human life is sanctified, and so I don't think we'll be actually. So, mm. what precisely was he doing to the living bodies, such that even this bunch of basically magicians was like, whoa, 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 yeah. no, mate, yeah. no, on your bike, sorry, too far, too far. Yeah, you get the feeling that Kyburn's leaving out a few details of exactly what kind yeah. of experiments. I experimented on living bodies. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of experiments? Um, oh, you know. well, inconclusive <laughs> ones, to be honest. I was sacked before they got fin. Anyway, um, pass me yeah. that. Pass me. Pass me that. Just chaucible uh, over there. <laughs> yeah. Now um, it turns out the mountain's still alive, and they can hear him roaring in agony throughout the night. Um, and this is this is a, obviously a fair length of time. It must be a week, at least a week or so after after. Um, he was you know the Oberyn fight now. Yeah, and it turns out there's this type of carefully thickened, possibly magically thickened poison, which is slowly spreading through his body and killing Ooh. him in a in a slow, agonising way. Yeah, um, and Cersei allows Kyburn to sort of start experimenting on the on the poor guy if he's not suffering enough already. Dear um, me. It's all taking a bit of a dark turn there, isn't it? It certainly has. Yeah. Well, Kyburn seems to be this really weird sort of kind of effete but deeply kind of menacing presence that mm. it's the it's the you know it's the classic it's like the nuclear scientist of the 20th century who you know or it's it's jurassic park you know he's so busy seeing if he could he doesn't stop to think if he should and that kind of yeah. amorality is exactly what cersei needs to open up this whole <laughs> new interesting frontier of human experimentation that she's never thought mm-hmm. of doing before you can almost hear her drumming her fingers together and going magnificent another way to be horrible to human beings Cut him open and let me watch. Yeah, yeah. Um, after Kyburn scuttles away to get on with his experiments, um, Sir Kevin Lannister turns up, and this is uh, Cersei's decided that she wants him to be the hand of the king now, which seems like a very good appointment. Problem is, she originally asked Jamie, and yeah. Sir Kevin is—he's obviously there's obviously he's been sort of number two to. Um, to Tywin all his life, yeah. But there's obviously quite a lot of the um, shrewdness about him, about his brother that is um, is, is evident in Kevin as well. Mm, mm-hmm. um, so he he sees which way the wind's blowing with Cersei a bit here, and he says he'll become hang, hand of the king only if she leaves and goes to Casterly Rock, so he can actually get on with things <laughs> without her over his shoulder. You would though, obviously, wouldn't you? If you had anywhere close oh, yeah. to the amount of pull enough to get her out of the city, you'd be like, yes, on one condition, fuck off. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously, uh, she's she she doesn't want to do that. And there's it's a, there's a, it's a brilliant conversation this because she gets just completely outmaneuvered and out argued by her uncle here, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah. Um, she's putting forward these points. She's saying like, you know, oh, um, he's saying, well, why don't you just get Jamie to do it then? And she says, oh, well, I, you know, he's 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 a fool. You know, he's 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 not the right material for it. Even though she did ask him first, and he says, well, why did you ask him? Oh, I wasn't thinking. And he's like, well, then you should leave and leave sort of running the country to people who do think before they actually act. And it's sort of <laughs> massive smackdown, isn't it? Great argument, though, isn't it? Fantastic argument. Yeah, yeah. And um, he also, I mean, he turns it down. Mm. And as he's leaving, he even gives her a bit of advice. And it shows that how good a... I think this shows how good a hand he maybe could have been because he says, you know, if you want to promote somebody to serve hand instead, choose Randall Tarley or Mathis Rowan, these two really important lords yeah. who are actually technically underneath Mace Tyrell. And he says, you know, they're both quite loyal, and if you put them in that position, they'll be loyal to you. Mm-hmm. Whilst at the same time, 
you know, um, makes Tyrell will be happy with it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but she can't see past the fact that they're Tyrell men, so she doesn't want to go near any of them. She needs people who are Lannisters, basically. Yeah. Um, and again, it just shows the difference between it shows who should really be running the running things now if you want to uh, yeah. things to go smoothly. Yeah, and it shows that you can that being good at politics isn't the same as being good at leadership. You know, it's mm. it's like you know you can win the bar fight, but you can't rebuild the bar. And mm. that's she's definitely she's the person who wins the bar fight and then just passes out in the ruins. Yeah. And I'm kind of I'm curious to see what's going to happen now that she, you know she is moving very efficiently and very effectively to consolidate power that uh, you know mm. a power that probably isn't going to do the country any good to be honest. Yeah, I, I like the fact that Sir Kevin as well. See, I got the impression that he um, obviously loved his brother a lot. And was very close with Tywin, but in the same, similar to even more so actually than Tywin, he was just massively disappointed in the kids, and he he dis, he he hates Cersei. He really dislikes her, yeah. and I don't think he thinks much of Jamie either. I, I don't know if it, I, to be honest, actually, when Tyrion was waiting trial, he was very sort of hard on him as well, wasn't he? Um, he was. Yeah. He just seems to be constantly disappointed on Tywin's behalf for how <laughs> his kids just keep fucking things up. Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? It's like he's kind of Tywin's paternal conscience, whereas Tywin just kind of let it, let it all go because they were his offspring and that means everything to him. Kevin mm. is like, you are no fruit of my loins, so I can see you for the drunken, feckless, incestuous waste of space you both are. You know, yeah. Um, but he really loved <laughs> his brother, right? So you know, he didn't do all of that stuff. He, you know, he didn't yeah. get forthright and so on. Just kind of let it happen. And now, 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 I don't know. Is he making the sort of the wise choice here in saying, you know, you know, the kingdom is just there's no chance the kingdom is going to function properly. I'm going back to Castle Rock, where all of the power and the money is, and I'm just going to wait it out. Mm. Yeah, well, I, th- I think he's he's shrewd insofar as he knows him trying to he, he does he he knows that running the kingdom is going to be hard enough without constantly trying to outmaneuver his niece. Yeah, at every turn, and if he and, and he could he could probably take on one but not both. Mm-hmm. So he's sort of I think he's probably making the best of it there. It's interesting about the how much he dislikes so this um parting shot where he basically says. You know, um, she says, "Oh, what you got? You what you're going to abandon the king?" And he says, "Well, he'll have his mother around." And then he sort of looks at her and says, "And his father." Ooh, um, <laughs> drops oh. Mike, leaves room. <laughs> yeah, after getting wine thrown in his face. Yeah, uh, Cersei has a moment as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, that dynamic I think is quite interesting. I like the um, I like the Sir Kevin character in this. Mm. Again, he, he's another one actually who in the in the series I don't think they, they've got the casting quite right. He seems a bit too deferential. Um, I always he always struck me as a bit more of a intimidating character in the uh, in the book. I don't know yeah. if I agree with that. I feel like he's he's patrician. You know what I mean? He's not a badass, yeah. but you wouldn't want to yeah. mess with him. You know, he's the sort of guy who would like happily sign a piece of paper condemning ten thousand people to death. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I know what you mean. He's no, he's no Tywin Lannister, but he's definitely a sort of you'd think twice before, to, you know, tumbling with sort of thing. Mm. Um, speaking of thinking twice before going toe to toe with Jamie Lannister, um, the the hardest of the Lannisters until he uh, lost his hand. Uh, <laughs> now fifth hardest. Yeah. Now, now he probably was struggling a battle against Tommen by the time. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Jamie's going through his own grief um, over his. He clearly blames himself for um, for his father's death. He is standing this long vigil by Tywin's body. It's quite interesting. It's quite good. This chapter, I, I liked it because he you go down memory lane a bit with Jamie, and you see a few of the very recent and and more sort of in the past things that have happened. Mm. So one is um, he remembers sort of forcing Varys to free Tyrion. It turns out that Jamie went to Varys's room, basically put a knife to his throat and said, you're going to free Tyrion. Wow. And uh, and Varys did it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then he, he immediately spirals down into a memory, a much earlier memory, of sort of during the sort of war with, um, with Robert Baratheon when Rhaegar Targaryen was still knocking about. Yeah. His last memory of him, and Jamie was sort of told to guard the king while uh, Rhaegar, the prince, sort of rode off to battle at the Trident where he ends up getting killed. Yeah. And um, Jamie's gutted about being left behind, 
but um, there's also this this conversation he remembers with Rhaegar where the prince was planning to make changes when he got back, and it seems like the it's, it's inferred or implied that um that Rhaegar was going to supplant the Mad King anyway, um because he realised things were getting out of hand, and it's sort of the you know what thing, might the have way been, things could have gone, what might yeah, have been, yeah, exactly. yeah I, I mean, yeah, absolutely, and um. I think it's this really interesting thing. This is what we're talking about earlier on with like characters who who deepen and cease to be, you know, one-dimensionally bad. Even though they like Jamie Lannister has done a hateful thing, but at the same time, you know, you see this whole kind of fear complex he has about being somebody who, you know, who abandons his responsibility. Um and it's very interesting that in the in the TV series uh, Cersei spends all her time blaming him for Tywin's death, whereas in the book he doesn't tell her and he spends his time blaming himself. Um, mm. But in both, he turns down the the role of Hand of the King, and for me, mm. it plays much stronger in the book because you can totally see now why he turns it away. Because he's, you know, he's he's. You saw it in the last book where he, the sword he makes and gives away to Brienne is called Oathkeeper. And, um, you know, and, and, you know, he has warmth towards her because he sees in her something that he's not capable of doing, which is acting with loyalty. Um, mm. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's really deep stuff, actually. And I really liked it. I thought it was really you know, profound. Mm. I also, I have to say, actually, I also thought the bit where he, um, where he describes how difficult it is to climb through secret passages with only one hand. Um, yeah. It was like, like there was. There's definitely some of the old kind of like acerbic Jamie there, and like how many yeah. people would kind of tell that story about themselves, you know, frustratedly, but seeing the humor of it, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, the actual nuts and bolts of, of getting Tyrion out. Um, there are two things here: one from this chapter, and one from the chapter before that I haven't mentioned yet. Mm. Um, it looks like Varys was um, was also doubling as this head jailer who was never there. Because um, the, the, the I, I, it seemed to me anyway from the way that this jail has been described and the way Jamie, as he remembers it, says, "Oh yeah, well, it felt I felt like a bit of a fool's errand to be asking about where this jail has gone when I know full, full well who it is." Um, <laughs> that it's just Varys sort of doubling up and um, having that, and that would make sense. The fact that Varys has such access to the black cells when Ned Stark was down there in Book One and things like that, he's been able to come and go because he's effectively been playing the part of this jailer yeah um called rugen yeah uh, and also the kyburn says in the last chapter that he did a search of the cell like rugen's cell yeah and found this old coin from which is basically from high garden yeah and I, I, I don't know. What, what, how do you think that builds? I mean, it's a, it's just a really old coin, basically. Yeah. So I think Cersei makes a connection to Highgarden. But do you think there's a, do you think there's a sort of, there is possibly some involvement there that we just don't know about? Could be. Although you know, it's not as if they had much to gain from killing Tywin, right? Or mm. setting Tyrion. They, they're the only people in the entire kingdom that are just profiting hand over fist from the sort of you know, the fact that the Lannisters like them. They're providing all of these you know, all of these alliances through marriage, none of which have been cemented yet. Plus, the coin is... I mean, I th- for me, it's a sign of Cersei's extreme paranoia. Because mm. the, the coin yeah. is, like, is, is, is thin and old, and it's as if, it's as if in... In, it's as if in some old city, you know, York or Worcester or something, you like you, you turn over, you know, turn over a piece of your potato patch and you find some Roman coin, and somebody comes through mm. and prosecutes you for the for the unlawful unlawful crucifixion of Jesus Christ. You're like, well, mm. I think you've probably made a bit too much of a leap there, haven't you? You know, like it's just mm. at a certain point, artifacts are artifacts. Yeah, and that seems to be the case here because it seems quite clear what's hap- what heavy happened. Yeah, is that Jamie forced Varys to to actually release him. So quite how you can get some kind of Tyrell involvement in there seems very, very difficult. Mm. Um, so during this long vigil, um, Cersei actually sort of sneaks into the Sept to ask Jaime again to be Hand of the King. Mm. And because it was the first time was at Tywin's deathbed mm. and um, and they had that argument. And Jaime turns her down again mm. and continues the... Um, continues the vigil throughout this chapter as well he's sort of the memory of that conversation he had with Tyrion where Tyrion basically said about Cersei that she'd been sleeping around mm. keeps going back to him again and again and you can see that it's playing on his mind especially whenever he sees her and interacts with Cersei you now yeah yeah very much and that's 
I mean, it's very strange that on the one hand, that's a dynamic that you understand very well. You know, it's one of the oldest stories ever told, this kind of this idea of a jealous lover and so on. But working out how it functions when the two lovers in question are brother and sister, like, you know, nobody really has a kind of model for how to expect that that vibe to play out. So mm. so it's very interesting. For me, it's a very interesting little thing. Um, like, I, you know, yeah. on the one hand, I'm very familiar with it. On the other hand, I'm like, ah, what's going to happen now? Yeah, yeah. There's a. It looks like it turns out that this this sort of funeral for Tywin has been taking place over a number of days, and people keep coming back to the sept day on day to continue to pay respects. Mm. And obviously, the smell's only getting worse as that's happening. Mm. Um, it seems like a, a strange way to handle things, considering. I suppose once you've said you're doing seven days of sort of respects, you go, you can't just cancel it three days in because <laughs> the corpse is beginning to stink. Yeah. But um, that's very much what's happening here. Yeah. And at this th- this this visit, Tom and actually starts retching and runs out in tears and it's sort of like a oh shit this is supposed to be the king yeah like it's <laughs> uh it's you understand it though don't you nine-year-old boy mm. forced to stand over and smell the decomposing body of his presumably beloved grandfather and act as though it's <laughs> not a big deal yeah and uh, so this ends with him running out and Jamie actually goes after him and and sort of calms him down a bit. Mm. And there's a little plan that Jamie and Cersei come, come up with here, which seems quite a useful idea, to get Mace Tyrell out of the picture for a while. And it's to send him on um, a mission to retake Storm's End. So something that is easy to forget at this stage. Although the war's effectively over, it's still going on in places. Stannis is still obviously kicking around. Storm's End is still still belongs to Stannis which is on the mainland mm. Dragonstone still belongs to Stannis which is just off the mainland so you know even though and obviously you've still got the um, the war kicking on in the Riverlands as well mm. there's still elements of sort of the old Stark bannermen who are still fighting on yeah. so it's still a very dangerous place and a very unstable time for the for power in, in King's Landing yeah. and one of the ways they're trying to consolidate the, the Lannister position is to send Mace Tyrell off on a sort of guts or glory mission to take Storm's End which he's been after yeah. he's been after doing something sort of dramatic and, and military like for a while so everybody's happy he can he gets out of the capital so they can actually get rid of him for a bit yeah. and he gets to sort of do something useful for once stupidest thing you ever heard though isn't it like <laughs> like you, you're in this position where you're running the place and other people are doing the dying but and you've got all of the money but you decide that the thing to do is to go out there and try and take this castle, which was taken, by the way, is still held and was taken by the guy who now has it by kind of weird supernatural means. Mm, yeah. mm, you know, not not too sure about that one, Mace. I'm not certain it's a straight in and out sort of <laughs> assault job yeah. on the castle, really. Yeah, I suppose the way he would look at it is that it's this um, sort of cut-off castle, which is, you know, fairly well defended, but it's got, a, I don't know, not that many people there compared to the army that they've got now. It's almost like a mop-up job, but he can claim that he's won this great victory as well, and presumably when he returns, having taken the castle, he will be in a much stronger position to consolidate his position then, because mm-hmm. he will be the only person there who's actually um, commanded a, a massive victory in, in sort of I don't know, recently. You'll have the sort of Tarleys and stuff as well knocking about, but they're, again, they're his men as well. Because mm-hmm. I think the principal sort of generals and battle winners, yeah, most of them have died now, haven't they? Tywin's died, the Mountains die, and he was the sort of main general for the Lannisters. Yeah. So there is a power vacuum in terms of sort of saying, I am the military commander of this whole thing. Yeah, and I can definitely see, you know, he's he knows how to turn a profit, Mace, so I can definitely see why he might think he's about to be that guy. <laughs> yeah. But... You know, I'm not too sure about it. Uh, but I, I, maybe I'd have a stronger image of that if, if all the people who were my vehicles to see the war through uh, hadn't died. <laughs> like, I was thinking, you know, we're talking about the idea of this war still going on and it's still, you know, it's a conflict situation and stuff. And I'm, I'm willing to go along with that. You know, I'm willing to, that's, that's something that I'm, I'm bang alongside. But everybody I knew who would tell me about that has died. So I'd, mm. I now have no idea what the war is like in the country. I think that's a bit of a problem. Mm. Well, uh, George has got you back because the, the next chapter and final one we're doing today is about Brienne. Mm. And she uh, is searching for Sansa. Um, and in so doing, 
is doing a bit of a walking tour of uh, the battle-torn lands of uh, Westeros. Mm. And uh, she's on her way up to Duskendale, which is... um, Duskendale's quite an interesting place because in in the sort of height of the the war in the first book, it's this place that... Do you remember when the Northmen were were well on top? Mm -hmm. um, Some of them got sort of dispatched to go raiding Duskendale. Yeah. um, to sort of fill the boots, basically, as a thank you for sort of helping out so far. Yeah. It was just, just before things started going massively to shit for the Northmen. Yeah. And it was this massive defeat for... I think it was the um, it was primarily the, the Glovers and the Karstarks involved in it for the North. And um, I love this the fact that she, she arrives at Duskendale and it's getting back on its feet now after this massive war and massive battle. Yeah. And there's just all these um, people on the market selling arms and armor and shields and stuff and it's all with the um sort of the uh what are they called the um what's it when you you, you shield sign or was it oh uh sigil yeah it's all with the sigils of all these houses that are taken part so there's loads of uh mailed fists which are the glovers mm. and loads of the white suns which if you remember the cast arcs because all these people and they're, they're sort of it's almost like the ghosts from book one are sort of just reappearing again and I love that sort of texture in this this part of the book mm. yeah 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 I agree with that I think it's um it, that, I mean that's a good answer to the problem I was talking about before is that while I've lost my image of the war texture is coming in from other places interesting though I am I am still seeing West. Yeah, I like the I like the male like the Glovers and the Car Stark's armor and stuff because it makes you sort of think back, thinking, oh shit, yeah, I remember when like they were on like this crest of a wave and you know the North were kicking ass and taking names. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it sort of all went to part. Uh, yeah. Sad, sadly. But the thing is, uh, well, thinking, you and I are both wired to root for any any war where the North is winning. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna be yeah, fucking come on. Yeah, and then he doesn't come the up. The problem is as well though, it just reminds you of the the glacial scale of progress of the North <laughs> making towards actually <laughs> doing anything like that again. <laughs> oh, I can all turn on a sixpence, Matt. This is Westeros. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, Brienne has finally decided to get a shield repainted because she keeps getting shit for having this bat on a shield, which everyone remembers as this like horrendous house that used to live at Harrenhal and used to be, uh, I don't know, they had this unsavoury reputation. So yeah. she's finally do- doing something about that. Um, she's getting a, a new uh, sigil painted on it. It's not her, it's not, it's not Tarth, the one that, the place where she comes from. It's this different one. Do you think it, she makes it clear what it is, but it's something she remembers. Yeah, um, I mean, it's sort of something that was painted over the door at some point or something like that. It was like something that she saw in her father's armoury. Hmm. Um, yeah. And fair enough. But does it strike you as a bit weird that a character who's so obsessed with honour and so on as Brienne just sort of says as an aside, uh, are you, you know, I couldn't use my own arms i can't use the arms of tarth otherwise mm. you know because everybody still hates it i'm like well you know traveling under a false banner hasn't done you any more favors what's everybody going to think when you turn up with like a shield that's painted like a sort of primary school art class you know, look at it mm. and be like so you're from the house whose sigil is the strangely painted scene of a unicorn having a slash on a tree next to a <laughs> rainbow what fucking yeah. house are you from, even? You know, like, I don't see how it's going to do her any favours. You're just a- attracting attention yeah. to yourself by not being part of a particular clan, aren't you? She, she, should, she should have gone for the angry-looking red-eyed mouse on her <laughs> uh, bleak landscape. Yeah. House Shardich, whatever it is. Yeah, Shardich. Met this bloke, he seemed legit. Wanted to go around kidnapping kids, <laughs> so I thought I'd copy him. Oh, she should have yeah. done the red chicken. That's what she should have done. She should have painted the red chicken <laughs> Come back across <laughs> Illitha the Penniless and be like, "What now, motherfucker?" <laughs> That'd be great. My nemesis returns. <laughs> Seems bigger than before. Also real rather than completely made up. Shit. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I don't mind that so much. Actually, putting the false sigil on, just because in in the books, unlike the series, in the books, she's very aware of the fact that. It's useful to be um, a little bit incognito when you're out searching for this, especially considering her reputation as a killing uh, Renly. Um, and also, she's thinking a bit about how people will see her as she's going along. Whereas, mm. for example, also, she's got Oathkeeper, this really like um, 
this ornate Valyrian steel sword, which is obviously a Lannister sword, mm. which has been given to her. Mm-hmm. But she keeps that hidden away yeah. and uses her old sword so as not to draw attention. Whereas in the series, she just fucking walks around with this <laughs> Lannister sword. So every single time she bumps into anyone, they're always pointing it out. She sees the hound, he points it out and says, you're a Lannister. Yeah. And she's still got it on when she sees Littlefinger. He points it out and says, it doesn't occur to her to hide the fucking sword. <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand, it's supposed to be quite big, isn't it? So, so like, yeah. you know, he's, yeah, he's not exactly yeah. fold away, is it? Like, I noticed that you're carrying an extremely old, notched and not at all impressive sword in your hand while you have a nine foot long slice of the most terrifying offensive weapon ever made in our... To be honest with you, you haven't avoided any questions from me, have you? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, I suppose there's something to be said for both. But, um, <laughs> at least she's thinking about it in the book, anyway. Um, so she she goes to see the guy in charge of Duskendale, and um, they hear about so Rufus Leak, as he's called, um, says that she's looking for this Dontos, Sir Dontos guy, isn't she? Because it looks like he's the knight that Sansa ran off with, mm. um, and it turns out Dontos hasn't been there for a while. Um, and they also tell Rufus Lee also tells this story about how during the sort of rebellion, Duskendale actually rebelled against the king during uh, sort of some some time way back when, like rebelled and, um, almost first, right? Yeah, yeah, and um, and Barristan, the, the the king ended up getting captured there, and Barristan had to go in and sort of save him and get him out before the uh, before the town could be taken. Yeah. It's a little bit of extra little history lesson, which was quite interesting as an aside. Mm. Um, but yeah, the main the main point is that Dontos hasn't been around for ages, so she's no lead. Yeah, she then goes to this um, tavern and she bumps into this little dwarf monk who has a, a usual, you know, as usual, has a tale of woe. He's sort of he used to serve in this uh, sort of sept in the middle of the countryside, which got sacked and uh, everybody got killed, but he managed to hide. Mm. Um, and he says he remembers this knight, Sedontos, uh, it seems, buying a ship for passage for three people. Um, mm. And so it's so it's actually a genuine lead. Uh, and this guy, he said he heard it from this guy who's from Maidenpool with a world class name. He's called Nimble Dick. Um, <laughs> and got a, is he now? Yeah. Do you so think he introduces so, himself? Is he proud of that, or does he go? I know what you're thinking, <laughs> Richard. Actually, and I'm quite good at footwork, so less of that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, daft name aside, Brienne at least has got something to sort of go towards now. So she decides to head off to Maidenpool and um, and see if she can find this guy to, to to go a bit further to keep on the trail. When she's on the way to Maidenpool, she. Um, she sees Sedontos, his old, like his family castle, which is now in ruins. She goes to take a quick look at it, yeah. and in that time, this little guy who has been following her all the way. You keep, she keeps bumping into him. Um, this lad on a horse uh, turns up, so she gets the drop on him to find out who he is, and it's little Pod, who was Gemma the Squire. And it's quite funny. She does the whole sort of, why are you following me? And he does the classic, because i got nowhere else to go. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked this, actually. And I, um, I, he's a nice, li- I couldn't work out whether I like this in the TV series more or in this, because in the TV series, obviously, Podrick's been with Brienne for a while. Um, mm. uh, so the, when I started reading this, I was like, it was one of those moments where I had to remind myself of the differences. Um, mm. But in the TV series, Podrick has kind of gone from being this like stammering imbecile to being a bit of a simpleton with a heart of gold sort of thing. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. whereas in the book, he's still very much this like completely useless, stammering, completely incapable. He's like all of his communications with everybody. He sounds like a naughty schoolboy who's crying in front of the headmaster because he drew a penis on the back of somebody's shirt. You know, like he's just yeah. he's, he comes across that way. Um, so to be honest with you, I was most happy about this because I felt like maybe there's a chance I'm going to see badass Podrick start to emerge in the books as well. And I'm like, I'm rooting for this yeah. kid. I'm on Team Podrick, I'll tell you. I want him to, to become this, like... I want him to become the king, basically, is what I'm hoping. Podrick Payne in charge. <laughs> Podrick on the throne. Pod- on the Iron Throne. Podrick on the Iron Throne. <laughs> that would be a twist, it would. It? That's what the ending is. Once again, mark it well, Matt. Books <laughs> book six and seven have yet to come out, you know. <laughs> Pod for the Iron Throne. Pod for the yeah, Iron Throne. Sounds good to me. It's funny because in, <clears throat> he, I suppose he had his moment, didn't he, at the Battle of the Blackwater where he saved Tyrion's life by killing a member of the Kingsguard. Mm. So not many people can say that. Yeah. But he's, um, he is just continues to be this sort of stammering. He's only a little child, I suppose. And it's quite 
a good example of what happens to kids in this unless you're someone like I mean Arya is such an unusual case because she's such a strange child anyway yeah that's but true what happens to a typical what happens to a typical kid when you sort of you they lose the support network because mm. he was obviously that the what's supposed to happen here is he becomes a squire then goes up through the ranks from there yeah but Everyone who's supposed to look after him has died. Yeah. And uh, I think we find out a bit more, actually, in the next part of the book where he tells a bit of his story about how um, <clears throat> he just constantly has gone through, like, people who are supposed to be looking after him have ended up getting killed in battle or other sort of, like, uh, killed for other offences and stuff. Yeah. And he's just sort of bumped along attaching himself to people as he goes because he's really got nothing else that he can do. There's no yeah. home he can go to. Yeah, 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 Absolutely. And it's mm. quite, yeah, it's quite affecting, really, isn't it? It's quite sad. I feel sad for him. Mm. Yeah. Well, that is as far as we're going for this week. We, <sighs> I mean, uh, you leave me on a sad note, Matt. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna sit yeah, here feeling of, sad for yeah. Podrick the whole time. Yeah. For us, oh, you can read on to the next chapter about Sansa. because she's in a great place <laughs> at the moment. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Give me a bit. Quick me up for the emotions. Pick me up for the emotions. Yeah. Listen to flipping Sansa talk about her poor life choices. Dearie me. <laughs> Yeah, it looks like we're going down memory lane because that chapter begins when she was just a little girl. Um, we're going to read this far, for next week. If you're reading along with us, we're going as far as a uh, chapter about Jamie, page 280 in my book, which uh, begins Lord Tywin Lannister had entered the city. Mm. Um, so I assume that means had entered the city historically, unless we get into quite the twist in the next part of the book. Um, so I hope yeah, so. That's, the, that, that that's what we're going to. I wonder who's going to die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, so yeah there we go so that's uh, two parts in of our ten and um, yeah we've we've had a again it's there's not a lot of plot movement particular is it it's, it's still about just setting out um, the the world and just reminding us exactly where everything lies in this, this stage isn't it mm-hmm. yeah yeah well for next week uh, until next week it's uh, it's time for us to bid a fond farewell as we saddle up and join Brienne on her path to Maidenpool and join Tywin on his continued path to nowhere as he's dead. And, uh, <laughs> Superlative recovery there, Matt. I don't think anybody noticed. <laughs> and maybe maybe we'll see a bit of Arya again as well. Oh, and, and, oh I and do Sam, hope so. Yeah. There's plenty of questions anyway. There we go. Yes, excellent. Next week. Until next next week. Oh, uh, one more thing to say. If you do want to uh, give us any thoughts on the book, any feedback... You only need to send it. Obviously, thoughts on uh, use of male nipples as well. Send to uh, sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com. Sharkliveroyalpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can get us on Twitter at sharkliveroyal. Until then, Dave. Until then, Matt. Goodbye. Please.